from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan. We made the trek north of the border to visit our friends in Canada this week. It's Grain Farmers of Ontario's March Classic. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The battle with Mexico over GMO corn isn't just making waves in the U.S. Some of the concerns around a decree in Mexico certainly undermines that science-based decision-making and open trade. And so there's a concern there. Why grain farmers here in Ontario say they stand in solidarity with farmers in the U.S. Getting your game plan together for the war on weeds. Today, when we think about putting a herbicide plan together, it's quite a bit different than it would have been, let's say, 10 years ago. We help you prepare for planting this weekend. And in John's world. Flattening the duck. Now for the news, just days before China's President Xi Jinping arrived in Russia for a multi-day visit with Russia's Vladimir Putin, the United Nations announced the Black Sea grain deal will be extended. Ukraine saying that that grain deal is extended longer than 60 days. Russia says it's extended for 60 days, but Russia says it decided to limit the extension over what it called a, quote, lack of progress on normalization of domestic ag exports. It says if the deal is renewed again in May, it would depend on certain conditions, including a resumption of farm machinery supplies and unblocking of foreign assets and accounts held by Russian ag companies. Russian President Putin said if conditions are not met, world leaders shouldn't worry about a food crisis in Africa as Moscow would send free grain to African countries in need. There are reports that China is battling a new surge of African swine fever. Three managers at pig farming companies and analysts telling Reuters that positive detections exploded after the Lunar New Year holiday. They claim the order of magnitude in a single month has reached the level of the whole year of 2022, with one analyst guessing the current outbreak in northern production areas may be reaching 50 percent. Wholesale nitrogen and phosphate prices are down 20 percent since the start of the year in the U.S., a decline that's been even sharper than what some industry analysts expected. But forecasting herbicide prices are actually becoming even more challenging thanks to China. As farmers prepare to plant this spring, the price of fertilizer among ag retailers can show a large disparity. We spoke to Sam Taylor, Robo Agrofinance's inputs analyst, and asked him why. He says it's like catching a falling knife. For whether it's retailers, distributors, or farmers, no one wants to take hold of inventory that's overpriced. But he said herbicide prices are becoming increasingly difficult to project. That's because the pricing of active ingredients, which are the largest component of ag chemistries, comes from China, and that information has become less transparent due to geopolitical concerns. We've had to rely on other sources to get um, uh, clear pricing of what is already a very fragmented and opaque market for pricing anyway. So I think that this does lead into the, um, the prospect that even smaller but more established intermediaries within the um, uh, the landscape, so your local small retailers, your cooperatives, they're probably going to struggle for a little bit of clearer transparency going forward as well. The new waters of the U.S. rule is now in effect, but the future of the new rule is murky, and some states already stepped in to halt that this week. As we've been reporting, the new rule would replace one created during the Trump administration. It would expand federal protections for certain bodies of water. Now, the rule would exclude certain types of ditches, as well as some streams and only flow in response to precipitation and groundwater. However, we are also still waiting on a ruling from the Supreme Court, which is expected by June. Steve 
Kuczynski of the American Soybean Association says the biggest concern is the amount of uncertainty the new rule creates for farmers. A U.S. District Court did halt the rule in Texas and Idaho this week, with more states expected to jump on board. The Federal Reserve announcing another rate hike this week. The decision by the committee to raise rates 25 basis points puts the target range for the federal funds rate to three and three quarters to five percent. It represents the ninth rate hike since March of last year in an effort to keep inflation in check. However, the central bank took into consideration both the economy and the stability of the banking system, even though the latest inflation and other jobs information would argue for continued tightening. And their focus is trying to get the economy settled down and, and their way to do that is to in, you know, make the interest rate adjustment. So they're gonna they're taking their job seriously to try to do what they have to do to control the, the economy. Well, too much rain is forcing some California dairy farmers to relocate their operations as flood waters rise around them. Dairyherd.com talking to a Tulare County producer. He says his farm had to evacuate one dairy farm that sits south of the Tule River. It's home to about 4,200 cows. A director with the California Milk Producer Council says flooding in the southern San Joaquin Valley has caused the evacuation of a small number of dairies with another dozen or so where flooding could necessitate evacuation. Well, the good news from the recent rains, it's wiped out drought in Central California, but producers in parts of the Southern Plains and Southwest haven't been as fortunate, and it's taking an even bigger bite out of the U.S. cattle inventories. The latest cattle on feed report showing feedlots with a capacity of 1,000 or more head totaling 11.6 million head. That's a 4.5% cut year over year and the lowest March inventory since 2017. Placements in February totaling 1.73 million head. That's down 7.2%. It's also the sixth consecutive monthly decrease in placements. All right, that's it for the news. Well, spring officially kicking off here this week, even if the weather kept sending some mixed messages with winter not wanting to leave. We'll have a check of weather coming up right after the break. Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for only on MachineRepeat.com. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. H&S high-capacity rakes feature independent rake beams that have the flexibility to flex three feet up or three feet down. Available in 12, 14, and 16 wheel sizes, there are no restrictions even when raking the heaviest of crops. Find out more at the H&S website. Well, time now for a check of weather. Courtney Jorgensen is filling in this week for our first official weekend of spring. Courtney, talking to people here in Ontario, it's a similar story to what I'm hearing from those in Michigan this year. A few cold spells, some snow, but otherwise they say it's just been weird weather this winter. It certainly has time. That weather has been quite weird, if you will. Take a look at our root zone right now. Not too much going on over towards the Great Lakes, but through the central portions of the country. Still looking pretty dry out there, of course, with that atmospheric river that is continuing to pound the west coast. Still looking at very wet moisture uh, in the grounds there, so certainly very wet root zones. As far as that drought monitor, a good chunk of the country not looking too bad out there. This is certainly improvement over those past couple of months. Still looking at some of those areas, especially through the central portions of the country that are 
exceptionally dry. As we head over for how much precipitation we'll be seeing in the week ahead, certainly well above normal. Unfortunately, over on the West Coast, that is still going to be continuing to bring in more rainfall across the area. As we take a look at our jet stream in the week ahead, uh, we have had a number of moisture concerns over towards the southeast, and that'll be riding on and moving its way on off as we start to build that ridge further towards the south. We do have a trough off towards the north, so we'll watch those cooler temperatures, especially towards the north, begin to dip down, bringing us a couple rounds of energy as we head throughout the week. So kind of on and off rain showers for our folks towards the north. Same thing kind of happens as we head into Friday, and we watch that begin to move that jet stream energy as we head towards the Great Lakes on into Friday and into Saturday. Here's what it looks like as far as those temperatures for the week ahead. We are looking at above normal temperatures further towards the south. A good chunk of the country is right about normal for this time of year, but many folks to the north and especially towards the northwest and the southwest going to be looking at below normal temperatures in the week ahead. Here's what it looks like and what that means for us. That means the potential for more snowfall as well, not just over in the mountain region, but also off towards the northeast as well, especially in the northern Great Lakes, where we are looking at the potential for three, six plus inches of snowfall to the north there. As far as those precipitation totals, once we pile this all together, certainly much wetter towards the southeastern edge of the United or of the United States and over towards the west coast. You can see still looking at that upwards of three plus inches of rainfall as well as snowfall in those upper elevations. Here's what it looks like as far as our forecast and what we're looking at the potential for moisture across the entire nation. By the time we get towards uh, Sunday and on into Monday, still looking at more moisture off towards the southeast. They just keep getting pounded there. And the same kind of thing happens with that atmospheric river off towards the west. Still looking at that rain shower throughout the day on Tuesday as well. That is going to be continuing to bring moisture on the west coast. Thanks, Courtney. Well, the extension of the Black Sea grain deal did move the markets early this week, but with a record amount of wheat acres planted here in Ontario, what could it mean for the overall wheat picture? Our marketing discussion is from March Classic here in Ontario when we come back. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2023 March Classic is brought to you by Grain Farmers of Ontario. For more information, find us online at the address on your screen. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend here from March Classic with Grain Farmers of Ontario having us back this year. We appreciate it and excited to have our marketing discussion today. We have Steve Kell, Jim McCormick, as well as Floyd Howard joining us on the program. Steve, I, I want to start with you because one thing I noticed on the, on the drive over um, this week is there is a lot more wheat planted this year than I saw last year. So is this a, this a trend? How much wheat are we talking? And why did, did farmers here plant so much wheat this year? Well, you're certainly right. There's a lot more wheat. Um, in the fall of 21, Ontario farmers planted just over a half a million acres of winter wheat. And this year it looks like about 1.2 million. So more than double uh, the acres of winter wheat got planted. My, uh, and Peter Johnson will appreciate this, my excuse is that we're wheataholics, <laughs> right? We just go out in the fall and we plant wheat until something cuts us off. And this past fall, the weather was so good uh, wheat kept getting planted, and so, so now we find ourselves in a situation with a crop that's twice as big as last year's. Um, Market-wise, of course, we don't have twice as many flour mills. Um, total demand for, like, if we have, if we harvest that 1.2 million, we'll have over 3 million tons of wheat in a market that needs about 650,000 for flour milling. So the mills will have about five times as much wheat as they need. So we're going to have to look at exports, 
and, uh, and feed usage displacing corn in order to uh, get the wheat crop put away. What's your advice for farmers, not only that are still storing old crop, but as we could see this, this, this wheat come on board here later this summer? Well, ultimately, uh, basis has been fairly weak for new crop. Farmers have been reluctant sellers. Um, as I look at our book and, and talk to others in the trade, uh, we have less than half the amount of wheat bought for harvest delivery than we had at this time last year, despite the, the massive increase in production potential. So uh, the end user is understandably not aggressive for harvest. Um, and so that's uh, keeping basis relatively weak. I think historically, though, when you look at flat prices, they're, they're very good. They're not $11, $10 like we saw last harvest, but uh, they're still strong. And so farmers have to, have to weigh that against the huge production potential. I, I will say that from a yield perspective, our agronomy team has never seen the winter wheat crop rooted as well as it is. Uh, so the, the production potential is absolutely huge. Well, in a year ago, Jim, I mean, that's when we first start, started to see the, the invasion of Ukraine, and we thought, you know, well, we won't see a lot of exports out of that area. Yet here we set record exports. You know, how did that happen? And then, Jim, this week we're seeing this at least a 60-day extension of this Black Sea grain deal. So does it seem like that's pretty secure? We're going to continue to see that flow out of, out of the Black Sea. Italian, it does look like it's going to be able to do it. There was some confusion. The Russians are saying it's a 60-day deal. The Ukrainians are saying it's a 120-day deal. I think the reality is we're going to go 60 days and we're going to see what happens. Putin continues to, to make certain demands to keep the extension going, but the reality is China's taking a lot of that grain. They're taking the wheat. They're taking the corn. He doesn't want to honk off the Chinese, so I'm guessing the grain corridor will stay open, but there'll be a lot of politics between the deadlines. Speaking of politics and see, speaking of some, some issues and some nervousness, global banking situation, that really impacting commodity markets at the, first, at the, at the start of this week. And so, I, I, you know, we're having this conversation before the Fed makes an announcement, the U.S. Fed makes an announcement. But when you look at this nervousness, it seems like we're going to see this backstop. So why are the markets still so nervous? Just a lot of uncertainty. The Fed has made a couple indications they're going to backstop some of the grains or some of the bankers, but they haven't come out full-throated and say, hey, we're going to backstop all the FDICs unlimited. And that's forcing a lot of traders, a lot of bigger traders, move to the sidelines. They're just essentially reducing risk until a little bit of clarity. We do have the Fed minutes or the Fed decision coming out midweek. A lot of the thought is they'll raise the rates another quarter point. We're still fighting inflation. So just uncertainty is moving money to the sidelines near term. Well, next week, big report out of USDA perspective plantings, as well as an update about demand. We still need to talk about all of that. But first, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report. Well, last weekend, John Phipps talked about the duck curve in demand when it comes to electricity. He has part two this weekend in John's World. Last week, I talked about the uneven demand during the day for electricity and showed the famed duck curve for California, where rapid solar and wind installation adds to that volatility. The graph I used was not recent, however, and the duck is looking even weirder now. First, peak net demand has dropped from 28 gigawatts in 19 to 25 this month. The whopping change is the lowest demand number, which has plummeted 70% to 7 gigawatts due to more solar and wind. While an extreme example, as I said last week, 
The entire nation is dealing with duck-like curves. Coal and nuclear plants have essentially two output levels, on and off. The swings in generation needs in California and other areas encourage the installation of natural gas generators, which essentially can come online instantly. They were installed as peaker plants, although many are larger baseload plants now. While much better environmentally than coal, natural gas is still a source of CO2 and other emissions. To replace them and flatten the duck at an even lower net demand level, utilities are adding massive battery installations, often in, in conjunction with wind and solar facilities. Another answer is time of day, TOD, electricity pricing, which encourages consumers like me to schedule electricity use. This has coincided with the widespread replacement of electrical devices going cordless. EVs are the big innovation, but you can also see the battery changeover in other electrical devices. Here in my shop, for example, I move from drills and drivers to trimmers and chainsaws and expect my next lawnmower to be electric. Even larger tools like table saws are becoming available as battery powered. Now, add in larger house batteries which smart re and smart recharging, which is a real thing, odd enough, with the latest iOS upgrade on Apple phones. I use ancient mechanical timers to do the same thing with my tool chargers. Granted, recharging a phone is an electron and a lightning bolt, but that same technology can be added to all kinds of appliances when a battery is integrated into the manufacturer. For example, induction cooktops with batteries provide cooking power stored during off-peak hours. New battery technology means similar options will be available on virtually all appliances, with the added benefit of smaller wires throughout the house. The big point is the more we flatten the demand curve, the lower we can push the demand curve, cutting greenhouse gas emissions all the way. Thanks, John, and we'll make sure to get both of those commentaries on agweb.com. All right, when we come back, we're heading back to the states, to the Show Me State, for a Ford. Tractor Tales is next. U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Steel Closing Wheels, perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're Missouri-bound to learn about a 1964 Ford 4000. This tractor belonged to my father and he bought it brand new, and he fed cattle with it every day. He fed about 150 head of cattle. This is basically the same tractor as an 800 or an 860 Ford, and it is a, uh, was made for a year and a half. And Ford uh, changed the 10 work and everything on these tractors from an 800, and this is a 1964 model. And they didn't make very many of them. So uh, we're very proud. And this tractor belonged to my father, and he bought it brand new. When he passed away, I had everything appraised, and, and, and then the family members had an opportunity to buy any of his tractors at the appraised value. And my son David bought this tractor, and I bought a seven, 
uh, 30 John Deere diesel that I had run when I was a kid at home. To me, a tr family tractor is worth more than a tractor that you just buy someplace and you don't know any of the history from. And a lot of our tractors, we know the history of the tractors because they're, they're some farmers that had passed away and then we try to get one of their tractors and restore it. But, but this tractor, uh, my dad used it every day and, uh, and we got it restored pretty good. Thanks for that. And if you have a tractor that you would like featured, you can actually email us. We want those ideas. That's mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, on news, we talked about fertilizer prices in the U.S. and how they've actually fallen. But here in Canada, they're still battling high fertilizer prices as well as tariffs. So we'll look at some of those issues as we hit the field and see what's on the minds of Canadian farmers next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, so much has changed since we last visited with Ontario farmers a year ago at March Classic. A year later, some issues have cooled, but others are still heating up. We hit the fields in Ontario to bring you this weekend's Farm Journal Report. It's the moment of truth for the record amount of winter wheat planted across Ontario this year. Overall, um, there's a lot of green. As the soft red winter wheat crop breaks dormancy, farmers are uncovering fields that show potential for high yields. Yeah, it's got some good roots um, considering for the winter. And it comes as a surprise to some farmers who haven't seen much moisture this winter. We haven't a lack of snow, as you can see, um, the freezing temperatures. So it's, it's gonna have an impact, I think, um, unless we're gonna have, you know, the clouds open up between now and planting, hopefully not during planting. Julie Ma and her husband, Kyle, are third generation on this Lambton County, Ontario farm that originally started as a dairy. We've been here for for 14 years uh, operating the operation. We have three kids that we farm with um, and one is just turning 11 and is driving tractor and starting to get involved with the planting. From a seed business to custom farming, the malls stay busy and just this year Julie became one of two females to ever serve on the Grain Farmers of Ontario or GFO board of directors. All the various hats she wears from day to day is also what allows Ma to keep a pulse on agriculture beyond what she can see from their farm. Last year was a tough year with input costs the way they were, the overhead. Um, I mean, it wasn't just seed that was expensive, fertilizer expensive, gas was expensive. The whole makeup to make everything happen, uh, people saw that fluctuation and that increase. Um, the larger scale farms, you know, can muffle that a little bit easier than our smaller uh, farms and so some are waiting to the spring um, to put those uh, orders in just because availability of income. Crosby Devitt, CEO of GFO, understands the angst as he says the risk tied to this year's crop is also high. If we look into this 23 season uh, going into spring farmers have probably more invested in their crop to grow the crop in 2023 than they've ever had in their entire 
career of farming. Brendan Burney farms in Essex County, Ontario, but he's also the current chair of GFO. He says fertilizer availability across Canada has improved from a year ago, but prices are still high. We were able to get the supply in last year very tight, um, but those boats that arrived had to pay a fertilizer ta uh, tariff. Um, when Russia lost its most favored nation status for Canada. So our farmers ended up at that time, we were hoping that it would be worked out between fertilizer companies and the government, but it ended up not being done. And he says that fertilizer tax was then passed on to farmers. After uh, crops were planted, um, tariff bills arrived for farmers to then pay. And we're still trying to work with the federal government to try to get that money back into farmers' pockets because it is a year later, but it is still sitting in a coffer there that has not been decided as to what they're going to, to do with it. That fertilizer tariff is still in place on products from Russia today, but buyers have found products from other places for now. But they have said that uh, if supply is very tight, they still might have to bring a ship in and we may have to try to advocate on getting it in and then, like we say, still try to rectify the tariff situation. Beyond the tariff issue, GFO is also watching disputes that haven't reached the Canadian borders yet. That includes Mexico's decree banning some GMO corn from the U.S. Some of the concerns around uh, the action in the declaration or the decree in Mexico certainly undermines that science-based decision-making and open trade. And so there's a concern there. Helping make a case for science-based decisions is what's already taking root across Ontario. GFO is partnering with researchers from the University of Guelph to discover how to micromanage nutrients and inputs to find the maximum results. I think what we're really uncovering now is there's still some really important fundamental questions about emissions or losses. And if we can solve those problems, that means we're going to be able to keep more of those nutrients in the land and available to the plant. And, and I think we're going to see some, some real some real breakthroughs over the next number of years. The research helps GFO harvest real results, which then can help shape policy discussions as Canada sets its own climate goals. Sometimes we see that where an emotional response to a climate piece will come and it's not really rooted in fact. And then you're trying to explain how it's not going to work on farm. And we want it to be a little more collaborative uh, with, uh, with government. Challenges in farming change from year to year, but Ma still has big ambitions for their family farm. Goals rooted in what's right for their farmland and their family. We'd like to grow the farm um, and young farmers, you know, we're not alone. There's other, you know, we're lucky that we started out farming with family, but not everyone's that fortunate. So building that legacy for the future. Well, the GMO corn issue with Mexico, it's one that also brings up worries about what it could do longer term to corn demand. We'll take a look at that corn demand picture, not only in the U.S., but Canada, and look at really where that is heading. That's our marketing roundtable discussion from right here at March Classic next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Pioneer combines leading-edge R&D with rigorous local testing to create seed innovations proven to thrive in your fields. Pioneer, what's next happens here. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2023 March Classic is brought to you by Grain Farmers of Ontario. For more information, find us online at the address on your screen. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. All right, Steve, before we get into, you know, demand and, and the potential acreage picture we could see out of USDA, you know, you look back at, at 2022 and the dynamic market that we saw. So as now we head and really look at this 2023 market, how should growers reset their expectations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, in, in 22, we saw 
three major events that could drive prices of uh, South American drought that affected Brazil and Argentina, the war starting in Ukraine, which you know put the market into a spin, and then some drier conditions in the US Midwest. So we had this kind of trifecta of things that push prices higher. Um, maybe all of those things will happen again this year, but the Brazilian South American yield is better than we thought. The war is getting to be old news. And so I think farmers need to dial down um, our expectations. We are not going to, if we're aiming for 22 crop prices in 23, we're gonna wind up missing the mark. Well, Steve, we'll, we'll see if you agree in this prospective plantings report that that comes out uh, next week. So, Jim, as we lead into that, you know, a lot of acreage estimates coming out. The thought, though, that we could see more corn acres. Uh, when you look at what agmarket.net right now is, is projecting, what should growers be expecting heading into next week? We're looking for more corn acres as well. We're looking for about 91 million acres. I mean, the reality is as the producers in the U.S. were doing their books, it doesn't matter where they're at. If you look for the southern part of Illinois, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, all the way to Nebraska, all our clients are all saying the same thing. Corn is where the money's at. So we are looking for more corn to be planted. Bean acres are going to be around 88, 89. As a whole, we do about 180 million acres of corn and beans combined, roughly. So the weight's definitely going to be on the corn this year. So then, Floyd, when you look here in, in Ontario, I know some growers are still kind of on the fence, haven't made up their minds when it comes to acreage decisions, didn't have all of the, you know, the things uh, pre-booked like we, we, we typically do. But you look at the amount of risk. Does corn still pencil here as well? Corn definitely is the, the best return. Uh, the reality up here, though, is with, as Steve alluded to, the, the big wheat acres, um, I, I imagine that all those wheat acres are going to be retained. So when we have planted acres provincially up 45% plus, Lambton County up 75%, um, something has to, has to accommodate that increase in wheat acres. So we're, we're anticipating that there will be lower corn acres and slightly lower to unchanged bean acres. Well, corn demand, it seems like in the U.S. and Canada, similar story. Corn demand had been relatively soft. Jim, we've seen China come in and, and buy some, some corn now, at least from the U.S. Earlier this week, um, in a week's time, they had purchased 2.25 million tons of, of corn. What is the expectation for how many, many more buys we could see from China? Um, our group is thinking it could be as many as 2 million more metric tons. So that would get close to four. And if they did that, that would put China's total purchases for about 18 million metric tons, which is kind of the low end of the estimate of what the industry is. And then the real question is, are they going to buy more than that as uncertainty of the pricing? China does seem to be a value price type of buyer. And with these break in prices recently, they've been very aggressive. So I think every kind of dip we get in the market, I would not be surprised to see China come in and step in and get a little bit more coverage done as they're just worried tying about that safrina crop maybe falling a little bit short. When China does come to the U.S. to buy corn, do we see then, you know, Canada backfill some of that demand globally? Does it shuffle a little bit and does it end up helping Canada as well? Um, certainly anytime a big end user takes product, it's like taking water out of a barrel. It doesn't matter which side they took it out of. It drops the level in the whole barrel. So it's useful to us. Uh, Ontario corn tends to go to Europe. We're a real short boat ride out the St. Lawrence and across into Northern Europe, we really can't get to China. 70% of the corn that China buys comes from the US. So it's kind of a funny relationship where they pretend they don't like each other, but somehow or another still do a lot of business, right? Well, Steve, Jim, Floyd, thank you so much for joining us this week from Grain Farmers of Ontario March Classic. We really appreciate it. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on US Farm Report.
Well, some planting has already started in the southern states of the US, even with a few cold weather setbacks this year. But as the rest of the country gears up for the growing season, we are helping you set up your fields for success from the start. And this weekend, it's all about jump starting your weed management plan as you prepare for planting. Lush winter wheat fields in the southeast corner of Kansas can be a little deceiving this year. Farmers here are still battling dryness, but it's also created a window of opportunity to prep fields for planting. In this part of the country, we've got a lot of work done. All our all our anhydrous is on, uh, probably is pretty much in this part of the world. Um, we've done a lot of field work prepping for corn, getting ready to plant corn. Last year's drought was so bad here. Dan Vitt says some of his soybean fields couldn't even be harvested. But a wet spring proved just as challenging, especially with getting an early start on controlling potential problems with weeds. In 1984, when I was a senior in high school, we rode a 180 tractor and a six row cultivator back and forth and back and forth. And the sprayer wasn't that big, big of a part of the farm operation. And now it's probably the most valuable piece of equipment on the farm. Viewing his fields as a classroom, Vet says each challenge also comes with valuable lessons. On pretty much all our corn and bean ground, we went to a two-pass pre-on-pre to keep trying to keep them from growing in the first place. And we try to start clean and stay clean. Farm Journal field agronomist Ken Ferry says a decade ago, a farmer had one herbicide program for corn and for soybeans. Today, that's vastly changed. So many different facets to the herbicide program, and we're talking about variety selection or hybrids. We're talking about uh, row spacing, planting date, application times. As controlling weeds has become more complex, Ferry says farmers' weed management plans should also be more robust. But we just can't have a plan up here. As a farm operation, we got to put our plan together, and it needs to be on paper. It needs to be detailed and then it needs to be shared with everybody in that farm operation. From sprayer operators to those planting the seeds in the field, Ferry says every person on your operation needs to know that plan. We need a written plan. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be reviewed by everybody in the operation. While Mother Nature can throw some curveballs throughout the season, Ferry says consistency is key. So with the full season plan, there's a lot of value in the concept of start clean and, and stay clean. So a situation where the full plan would have some residual in the pre-emergence, try to stop them before they, uh, before they even show up. Then you might be coming back and adding a residual to your, your post application, trying to lengthen that process out. Ferry says one of the biggest misconceptions by growers is to wait until you see a weed problem pop up to respond. But sometimes the scouting isn't as thorough as it should be. Uh, and guys are scouting from the pickup seat maybe, uh, and they finally can see weeds from the pickup seat and they decide that now's the time to spray. Then we get wind, we get rain, we get something in there, and all of a sudden we are a week later than what they wanted to be, and some of these weeds can grow a lot in a week's time. The other factor farmers also tend to forget is the correlation between row spacing and weed control. One of the, the challenges that we run into is as farmers are, are putting the plan together, and you may be thinking weeds on this spectrum and then somebody over here is thinking about planting, row spacing population. We know from studies that we've done clear back in 1992 already that we can pull those bean populations below 120,000 and not affect yield, but we do affect weed control. From reading the labels to tapping into the knowledge of your retailer, Ferry says those are some of the biggest tools a grower can use throughout the season. And for VIT, 
he's learned to keep an open mind. Be open-minded and be willing to change. That's the biggest thing. Uh, you know, don't get too set in your ways or sometimes it'll come back and haunt you. You gotta be open-minded and listen to people and, and sort through what fits your program the best. And we'll continue to help you prepare for planting as this series will happen over the next few weeks. All right, when we come back, John Phipps has customer support this week. How big is the undocumented worker problem? Well, in 2021, data shows the number of temporary foreign workers here in Canada jumped nearly 12% compared to 2020. That marked the biggest increase since 2016. In the U.S., the issue is tangled in a political web as farmers and growers deal with labor shortages and push for changes to H-2A. John Phipps has more on the topic this weekend in customer support. This week, a deceptively complex question about immigrants. I often wonder about the pros and cons of undocumented illegal immigrant labor. Specifically, what is the magnitude of undocumented labor in agriculture? Is there any possibility of transitioning from an illegal to a legal work permit-based labor force for the undocumented? And that's from John Connolly in Roanoke, Virginia, who has one of the coolest street names I've ever seen. It's a great question. First, I want to clarify some labels. Illegal, undocumented, and unauthorized are used interchangeably for such immigrants, but all carry some overtones of political position or bias. I will use undocumented, and everyone can read into it what they will. Second, there are multiple reliable sources for statistics on this issue but always some degree of difference in the numbers because the population in question is, well, undocumented. <laughs> Here is the total undocumented population as of last February, it, well, February 22. It appears to be virtually fixed at about 11 million people, of which some 8 million are employed, that, which is about 5% of our total workforce. The point of this graph is there is no surge in undocumented population in the U.S. and hasn't been for several years. About half are from Mexico. Many undocumented become citizens, and many are increasingly leaving voluntarily. While this exodus is true for about a dozen countries, the undoc undocumented population of Mexican immigrants, which is the largest source, has dropped by a third, from 6.6 .6 million to 4.4 million since 2010. As for industry-specific data, agriculture employs about 14% of those workers, largely in fruit and vegetable production and dairy. However, within agriculture, undocumented labor was about half of all employees. I'm pretty sure, but willing to be corrected, that this does not include meat packing, which I think shows up in manufacturing. These numbers are from 2017, however, and labor shortages have prompted many produce growers to shift to low labor crops like nuts. I think a transition answer is a path to citizenship for the undocumented, which has been proposed in several forms and is supported by a large majority of Americans, over 70%. Unfortunately, not enough of those supporters are in Congress. All right, what is the tie between basketball and farming. We will celebrate March Madness next on U.S. Farm Report. The 2023 Bracket Busters Challenge presented by Case IH is underway. Who's still in the game? To find out, head to AgWeb now through April 3rd to check the leaderboard.
Well, with March Madness underway in the States, this week we have a toast to the birth of basketball and one with both Canadian and farming roots. James Naismith, who grew up on a farm in Ontario, Canada, invented the game of basketball at a YMCA in Massachusetts. Naismith actually struggled in school, but excelled with farm work and loved being outside. Fast forward several years as a great athlete in high school and college. Once he graduated, he taught physical education, ultimately leading him to YMCA. Tasked with coming up with a new indoor sport for troubled teens, he invented basketball. He nailed a peach basket to a wall and had the players try to toss a ball into it. Eventually, he figured out to cut the bottom out of the basket to speed up the game. But the agricultural ties don't stop there. In 1975, Illinois farmer Arthur Errett created the breakaway basketball rim. The prototype was dubbed the rebounder. In 1982, that invention finally received a patent. And the breakaway basket that we just talked about that that farmer actually invented, he did so with a spring from a John Deere cultivator. Who knew? Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. A big thank you to Grain Farmers of Ontario for having us again this week and hosting us for the March Classic. We hope that you'll join us next weekend as we'll be back in the States, back in the studio, and work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on Earth. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.